With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we're here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to my 51st episode of the show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and better protect their privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, Podtoppin, or whatever other favorite podcast or news app that you might prefer to use. And of course, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website so you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available and you will also be able to see my sponsor's information out there as well. I sincerely appreciate all of you worldwide who tune in. And since I heard from several of you who told me that you also enjoy hearing about the locations throughout the globe where my listeners are from, I am happy to share another peek into that insight today. So today, I want to welcome a large number of new listeners in this past week from Canada, from Brazil, and oh boy, I'd love to visit Brazil someday on my bucket list, Switzerland also on my list, and Slovakia, and and that's on my list as well. Well, I pretty much have every country and continent, including Antarctica on my list. Now, in the U.S., I want to give a huge welcome to another approximately 2,000 new listeners. So thanks to you all for tuning in. If you're interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, please also get in touch. And if you need help with information or uh, security or privacy, just let me know. And please keep all your feedback and questions coming in. My February Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of January. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please sign up for them. I've been providing them free since 2007 in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues and also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. Now, you can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now, to my tip for the week. You know, this has to do with what was reported in January as being the largest breach to date. So, some of you may have seen this. Troy Hunt, who runs the Have I Been Owned, and it's it's not actually owned, it's Have I Been Pwned, 
P-W-N-E-D site, and people pronounce that different ways. Anyway, he revealed what was referenced as the largest breach to date. What it was was actually a collection of records from likely many different breaches, and it was all gathered into one handy-dandy huge single data file. Now, this file of breached data includes over 12,000 different files, which are over 87 gigabytes in size. So let's consider some of the things in there. There were 2.7 billion, and that's billion with a B, billion rows of email addresses and their associated passwords. There were 1.16 billion unique combinations of email addresses and passwords. There were 775 million unique email addresses, and there were 21.2 million unique passwords, million with an M. Now note, this this number of passwords is a significantly lower number of unique passwords. Well, why is that? Well, it indicates that a large number of those passwords that are the same that lots of different people are using themselves They're all using a lot of the same passwords. Why? Because they're using really bad, weak passwords. So stop doing that. Don't use such bad, silly passwords like 12345 or ABCD or password. Now, after this report came out, many cybersecurity reporters and a few experts and practitioners, they came in at came out and they downplayed and really poo-pooed this as not being anything to worry about since much of that data was, as they put it, quote, years old, at least two to three years old, end quote. Well, I disagree with their dismissal of concern because this has some really important lessons for business leaders and the general public. Just think about it. How many times do you change your password? How many times do you get a new email address to use? Many people do not change their passwords. Some people change them maybe once every five to ten years. Uh, Many people use really bad passwords, as those statistics I gave earlier points out. Many use their email accounts for their user IDs at financial, retail, and many other types of websites and accounts. Many people use the same password for all of their accounts, 20, 30, 50, or more accounts. And many people use really horribly weak passwords. So this repository of so-called old sensitive data that's two to three years old, you know, that's still valid. Um, Most of that's probably still valid and usable in many different places. And here it is, all located in this one handy-dandy searchable repository that was reported. Never dismiss the use of data that was breached one or more years ago as being harmless. Many people don't even know when their personal data was breached. So 
they never changed their passwords. I heard some of the pundits say, oh, well, they probably changed their passwords since that time. Uh, I don't think so. A lot of people just don't do that. Or they also have other types of authentication that they never change or is bad. That data could very well still be used for new exploits, for identity fraud, and for other types of crimes. So here, very quickly, are my tips for the week. Use different passwords for different types of sites. Ideally, a unique password for each site, but I know that's tough for some people to do. Use strong, complex passwords, upper and lowercase alpha, numeral special characters, and make them long. Enable two-factor authentication wherever possible. Change your passwords as soon as you hear of a breach, and change passwords if you worry that they may have been compromised. Maybe you just get a little funny feeling in your gut that something uh, is going on with your account. Change your password. Don't rotate or reuse authentication credentials across your different sites and accounts. I know a lot of people do this, but if cyber crooks find your ID or password for one site, those crooks are going to simply use it to try to get into other sites. Use different email addresses for different purposes. I have half a dozen email accounts. And some of them I use only for my financial accounts. Some of them are throwaway types of email that I use to get free stuff, you know, free reports and and so on. And use different passwords for different types of sites. Yes, I said this earlier. I said it first. This is important, so please do that. The fact is, extremely sensitive types of personal data such as this and this newly announced huge data file can be used to cause privacy harms to the associated individuals for many years after a breach has occurred. Just because the data is not fresh, does not mean it still cannot be used by unlimited numbers of cyber crooks to damage you in a very wide variety of ways. Okay, so now for our topic this week, I'm so excited to talk about this. This is a topic that I am just so concerned with. I've been passionate about it since um, I started using encryption back in the early 1990s. Encryption and the backdoors that some in government and law enforcement continue to want to compel tech companies to create, to give them what could be unfettered access to people's sensitive information that they obviously, those that were using encryption, they did not want anybody else to get into that encrypted data since they took the time to encrypt it for whatever reason, you know, wanting to keep parts of our personal lives private and not known by others is not a bad thing. It does not mean we're trying to hide anything bad. It simply means that the people who want to use encryption don't feel the need for having every single detail of their life, their activities, their thoughts, and others to be known and shared with others. Some of you might be surprised by that, given how freely some people share things on social media. But you know, some people just want to keep parts of their lives completely private and it's not because they're hiding anything. It's just because it's nobody else's business. Uh, Particularly, the approximately, you know, think about particularly all those people. How many people would have access through those back doors if we required encryption to have back doors built into them? Well, in the U.S., there are around three quarters of a million employees in law enforcement. 
And add to that, there's another approximately half a million employees in the 17 U.S. intelligence agencies uh, that exist. And then think about all the others in law enforcement and intelligence agencies and government throughout other countries where that encryption backdoor capability might be shared. And then given all of that access to the back doors and the high insider threat risk, you know, how many of those millions of people who have access might want to use it for malicious purposes? How many others then might be using those capabilities? Um, While strong encryption is found in many different locations throughout the world. So if we're giving uh, or requiring encryption to have backdoors built into them, do not forget strong encryption is found throughout the world in many locations and is pretty easy to obtain. So if businesses and law-abiding citizens are the only ones using weak encryption with those backdoors built into them, then the cyber crooks will be the only ones using strong encryption. And ironically, those were the folks that the backdoors were intended to be used on to begin with. There seems to be a a logic gap in the thinking here, right? Well, today, I'm excited to welcome back a brilliant, forward-thinking, and world-renowned information technology, data security, and privacy expert, Dr. Katina Michael. Dr. Michael is with Arizona State University holding a joint appointment in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the School of Computing, Informatics, and Decision Systems Engineering. Katina is also the director of the Center for Engineering Policy and Society. Katina researches on the socio-ethical implications of emerging technologies with an emphasis on national security and is a long-standing senior member of the IEEE Society on Social Implications of Technology. Dr. Michael has been a board member of the Australian Privacy Foundation since 2008. And in 2020, Katina will officially launch the IEEE Transaction on Technology and Society as its founding editor. Katina, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It's always great to be with you, and congratulations uh, on the 51st show. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm so happy to have you as my guest on this show, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts about, you know, this topic of encryption and backdoors, but I thought it might be helpful to start out with hearing some of your views and some of your key points about, you know, just the basic uh, purpose and benefits of encryption. So I personally think encryption is a human right. And what is encryption? It's, encryption is the ability to hide content of a message using some kind of secret key. So only that you as the originator and the sender of the information can be sending something through privately. And uh, one of my dear friends, Dr. Catherine Albrecht, who started the Start Mail email account, was very big on encrypted messaging. So she began that Uh, endeavor and service and it's still available today uh, and you can use that and feel very comfortable 
in being able to send a message on your email from A to B without anyone snooping into it. Um, there are many other uh, encryption email programs, um, pretty good privacy and, and a whole lot of others out there. Um, there's also virtual private networks if you wish for all your information uh, from your home uh, to be communicated to the outside world through a private link. Uh, you can also purchase uh, virtual private network facilities. But that's basically, um, uh, you know, uh, keeping your data and your thoughts uh, and your documents and anything you want to transfer, medical records, uh, in a private capacity. And, but now what's going on is that people want a second pair of keys. They want mm -hmm. the ability uh, to have access to those algorithms and those mathematical breakthroughs that we now call encryption so that they are able to view information on occasion from sender to receiver. Do you know when... I hear the government talking about this, and it's not new. I mean, back in the 1990s in the U.S., there was the clipper chip um, effort to do something similar to that, and that finally got kind of uh, shot down. But, you know, what are some of the impacts that you'd like our listeners to know about putting backdoors into security technologies such as encryption? Well, some of our listeners might be familiar with the 1983 movie War Games and there's this classic mm. line uh, where Matthew uh, Broderick uh, says something about backdoors and it really was one of the first times the, the public learnt about the notion of a backdoor and the geek in, in the movie said, what, what are you talking about? What are these backdoors? What do they do? And pretty much I want our listeners to think about a house that has been secured, uh, has bars on the outside of the windows, has locks, has double deadlocks, uh, has an alarm system. And a backdoor, literally, is an ability to open, uh, you know, a section of the house uh, in the back, for instance, available to someone to get in. Uh, who knows where the keys are, perhaps under a pot plant or under the front doormat or what have you. So a backdoor in the sense of uh, our network systems today is the ability for us to penetrate a system using some known uh, weakness uh, in that system, in that network. And it's uh, allowing others... Uh, through a back door into your operating system, for instance, maybe the um, Apple iOS or um, uh, the Gmail system uh, through Google, uh, but offering an ability for a government entity or a third party to access things that shouldn't be accessed by others, um, but doing so through some kind of, in this case, in, in the Australian law case, through legislation. So it's, it's making companies have a back door to their network um, using... Uh, technical means. And, you know, such backdoors, it it seems to like it, it would be so logical to know that if you're putting backdoors in something, that's a weakness. I mean, that was kind of like uh, when I started as a systems engineer building systems and applications, that was always the first, you know, lesson. Do not put backdoors coded into your your applications, into your software, because if you do that, then that's going to create the possibility that not only those who wanted to use that backdoor for good purposes, supposedly, but others who want to use that backdoor for bad purposes can exploit it as well. So why would you even have encryption if it seems like you have millions of people who might be using that backdoor to get into your data? That's um, exactly right, Rebecca, and it's, 
it's as you say, it's nonsensical. Really, um, you're introducing a system weakness deliberately when, as a cryptographer or a software engineer, you're taught to do the absolute opposite. You have to have a foolproof proof system, one that's impenetrable, uh, one that doesn't have backdoors, and one that has been designed with security in mind. So in the Australian legislation, the Telecommunications mm-hmm. and Other Legislation Amendment Bill of 2018, which has now been passed in terms mm-hmm. of the assistance and access um, sub-law, um, that was the very question, what is systemic weakness? What does it mean? And will the government, for instance, in Australia, define this in amendments, further amendments uh, of the law that was passed in 2018. So what does systemic weakness mean? Does it mean if you introduce a backdoor, it will collapse the whole thing? Does it mean that other uh, cyber criminals out there might gain uh, you know, a whiff of what's available and then attempt a similar breach? Does it mean that companies will move their businesses outside of Australia because of the reputational damage that this law has actually done uh, to them where you can no longer trust Australian businesses to design uh, you know, secure systems because legislation now states that a backdoor should be available for, for uh, technical assistance for the government or law enforcement. Well, when does the law go into effect? Is it in effect right now? It is in effect right now. Um, they rushed it through in the last sitting week uh, of 2018, just before the Christmas and holiday season. Um, even though there was a lot of discussion by the Shadow Attorney General saying this bill was far from perfect uh, and there were likely to be significant outstanding issues that they wouldn't support the bill because it was flawed. Uh, The Joint Parliamentary Committee on Intelligence and Security said, you know, we need to continue to review and amend this law even after it's passed. But it seems rather backwards that Mm -hmm. when there were significant issues, this didn't become a political matter to be discussed between the two major parties in Australia uh, and then the other smaller parties. But it was rushed through uh, to the detriment. It's a debacle, really. And what it's done is allowed Australia now to be the weak link in a series of links, for example, in the Five Eyes sort of approach where we have Australia, New Zealand, uh, America, Canada and the UK working together. Australia is now that weakest link. So if you want information, you go to Australia. You'll find it on on, on foreign, you'll find uh, intelligence on signals and telecommunications. And if we're introducing bills like this, then we become the weakest link and, and therefore the most accessible to other nations as well. Well, and the same tech then that Australia is using that is offered in the U.S., um, if, if that tech is... I mean, it seems like the tech companies wouldn't be creating two different types of tech for different country. So it seems like that is going to have an effect, a domino effect out to other countries then and make, you know, the encryption within that technology that's used in Australia weaker throughout the world, wherever it it happens to be used. I I agree with you. And look, we just have to look at the Kalia law in the United States. I I mean, if there is a reason um, and it's proportional and there's reasonable cause to believe someone has caused harm uh, of, say, more than three years penalty imprisonment, then I think law enforcement have the right to use the Kalia law for telecommunication interception where there is uh, reasonable cause and proportionality. However, if we are going to say that this is now uh, a principle that the rest of the world will follow, it's concerning me. And we saw the same thing happen with metadata laws across the world. To give you an example, 
In Australia, in 2015, after the metadata law was passed, 350,000 requests were made per annum since that time, and even local councils can use the power, which I think is ridiculous. So hmm. it's basically having the ability to look at content um, of, of senders. So I'm, I'm in a, a bit of a thinking, why do we need this new assistance and access when we already have metadata laws? And we have to think this is not about cyber criminals. This is not about terrorists. Uh, people can actually encrypt their messages before sending them. So I can encrypt a document or a spreadsheet or an image uh, before I place it on the internet, even if I'm using a public internet, even if I was to make my data public, if that message is encrypted using an algorithm I find on the internet, um, these new laws are really not going to stress out the sophisticated criminals because they're already encrypting their data before they send it over an encrypted messaging platform. Uh, who it will affect are everyday people, everyday users like uh, users of WhatsApp, um, Gmail, uh, in Australia, and you know, all of these big companies, Facebook, uh, Google, have all come out in protest uh, against this act now that we have in Australia um, that it seems we can do little about. Oh, yes. And, and like you said, that's such an important point. The fact that you can still encrypt your data using another method that is a strong encryption algorithm and then use another type of technology, WhatsApp or whatever, um, that's weak or have a, has a back door, and you can protect it that way. But as you say, I think it's an important point to make to our listeners. The general public isn't going to go out of their way to do that because most people don't know about uh, how encryption algorithms work and how they can actually you know, use additional encryption on top of what's built into different systems and tech. So, yeah, the, the criminals, like the, they're the ones that's going to have the most protected data and the tech savvy people in the long run. Um, I agree. You know, and, and I'm going, please, Rebecca, yes. Well, I was going to say, we're coming right up on a break right now. And hold that thought, because uh, for the rest of our show after the break, I want to talk about, you know, all these related issues to the law and the impacts that it can have. But uh, right now, it's time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. I'm speaking today with Dr. Katina Michael. IT privacy, data security, and ubervalence expert about encryption and the Australia law that just was enacted that uh, impacts encryption solutions. I'm your host, Rebecca Harrell, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHarrell at RebeccaHarrell.com and also through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy and compliance tools, education and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Katina Michael, IT privacy data security expert about encryption and the Australia law that generally forces backdoors into encryption solutions. So we were talking about some of the um, the issues related to this law and, and something that I found online, Katina, it was interesting quote, um, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison's uh, government had a quote out on their website, I noticed, that said such encryption backdoors were needed to quote, thwart criminals and terrorists who use encrypted messaging programs to communicate, end quote. So what would you say um, is wrong or missing from this statement and logic? So it's interesting. Um, the government is placing a lot of attention on cyber terrorism, uh, child sex offenses, and other offenses with more than three years uh, of imprisonment in the sentence. But this in- includes things like even copyright breaches. So what they're claiming is that through this new Assistance and Access Act uh, under the Telecommunications Amendment Act, uh, that they will be able to thwart the power of terrorists. Um, I think they highly do not understand the internet and they do not, they underestimate uh, cyber criminals and those engaged in uh, these horrible acts. Um, I think this notion that they will add safeguards to agencies' abilities 
by demanding that tech companies build back doors is fallacious. Um, and I think they really don't understand how encryption works. Uh, you know, they haven't heard of virtual private networks, perhaps, or they haven't heard of mm-hmm. encrypted and encryption uh, services. So I think they're, they're mis- misguiding, misguided and misaligning their strategies uh, in terms of combating these offences. And the other thing is they already have sweeping powers uh, through metadata laws that they've created mm-hmm. that can actually... Um, you know, identify issues as they as they happen. Um, so I think uh, a lot of people don't understand uh, Scott Morrison's position. It doesn't make sense. You know, it's very similar, uh, though, to what we hear here in the United States oftentimes and in other countries. And when I hear these arguments, it seems like those who are making these laws about tech don't really understand how tech works. And it, it would almost seems necessary to, to have lawmakers go through some sort of um, training or classes to help them to be more tech-savvy before they create laws that govern how tech uh, is or can be used and realize that criminals can get that tech pretty much anywhere they want to in other parts of the world. And they're good at replicating, Rebecca, as we've studied yeah. ourselves. Um, criminals are fantastic at mimicry. So if... Mm-hmm. Uh, government has asked businesses to create a backdoor. They will use the same backdoors uh, and they will, you know, through different exploits, use the same sort of injection code uh, in order to, to, to conduct um, the opposite. So the story goes something like this. Look, Australia, we want to make you safer, so we're going to introduce backdoors into uh, everything we've safeguarded in the past. And if we call on your businesses to do a change, we will do, we, you will do it. You will comply with our requests. And by the way, by making a backdoor, we make things a little bit weaker for everyone, but, you know, we'll be, we'll be better off. And, and that kind of argument just doesn't stick. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess to our listeners, you and I both are very, I mean, I strongly believe, yes, we need to protect against criminals and we need to protect against terrorists. Just for those of of you listening who might think we don't believe that we do but you know I look throughout history and some of the long time methods used like embedding people in with the criminals so that they can see how they're doing things and know the tools that they're using and then use them it seems like that would still be much more effective than trying to weaken everything for everyone that's using this tech Um, exactly exactly um the Greens senator came out um, speaking about digital rights. He said, not only will this terrible legislation infringe on the rights of every Australian, but will make it easier for sensitive information to be hacked and or exploited. It's exactly what you've said. And, and just to give you an example of some of the agencies uh, in the Australian context, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, ACES, which is human intelligence, the Australian Signals Directorate, the ASD, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, ASIO, the Security Intelligence Organisation, the Australian Geospatial Intelligence Organisation, the Defence Intelligence Organisation, and the list goes on, the Crime Commission mm-hmm. and so forth. There were so many, so many bodies that could uh, request that this power go into force that it became ridiculous. I think the only win that one of the opposition leaders had before the bill was passed was to have anti-corruption bodies ousted from that list of agencies that had power. But you've got this growing list, you know. Who, who 
will have access, mm-hmm. as you noted earlier. Why? And when we look mm-hmm. at Five Islands, Five Eyes, we see as well that if we look at the Canadian um, security establishments and commands and the American ones and the New Zealand mm-hmm. ones and the British ones, that you start to have this incredible network of networks happening where information is shared across countries. Mm-hmm. It, it's really amazing. And, you know, what I thought, too, is very interesting were the three powers that uh, the law gives to law enforcement. And I'm not I, I'm hoping that you'll be able to prov- provide more insight to those. But when I've read them at a high level, it's it. I don't know. It just seems very interesting. So the first uh, power is a technical assistance request, or TAR, where the police ask a company to voluntarily, and that's written in there, voluntarily help, such as give technical details about the development of a new online service. But what does that mean, voluntary? Is it really voluntary? Can individuals and businesses actually decline to help if it's voluntary? I think these are the questions that all the Australian businesses are asking at the moment. I mean, the metadata laws mm-hmm. were a nightmare to institute for service providers and anyone offering an IP service uh, had to provide metadata. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, we, I gave evidence for that at the Senate hearing talking about, well, who's going to bear the cost of that? Is it really consumers? Mm-hmm. How are you going to build these, these kinds of meta, metadata stores? For how long? Uh, and, and how will you technically implement it? And the same goes here. What is a voluntary um, assistance by a business to the police? Um, and what do you mean development of a new online service? What is that? Everything from uh, an, an amendment to an existing service that gives you new capabilities as a consumer or a really new service. You know, it's all vague. And in this 200 pages encryption bill that provided uh, and, you know, proposed the raft of new powers, which is now in legislation, well, who knows? This is the good mm-hmm. question. Um, what's voluntary? What happens if you don't comply? Uh, what happens if you ignore them and say, I don't have enough staffing and resources to help you with your, your problem? And, and what happens when uh, the technical assistance request goes to an international or transnational company? Uh, where mm. is the request handled locally? Um, what if there are no technical officers locally? What if it has to go back across borders? And no one's really thought this out. Yes. And, you know, like you pointed out with the Five Eyes um, countries, it will be really interesting to see maybe how now the other four countries in that affiliation, how they might leverage what Australia is doing to try to get the same types of, of laws uh, passed here. And I think it's really interesting, too, as you pointed out, uh, about the costs involved that will be presented to those organizations to give that assistance. Like the, the second power about the technical assistance notice where, you know, the government or law enforcement says the company's required to give assistance, such as um, to decrypt a specific communication or face fines. But think about how you can make really strong encryption. And of course, everybody out there, my tech friends will say, well, no encryption is unbreakable. But I agree. But, you know, you can make encryption so that it's really, really hard to break. And uh, you can manage the encryption and decryption keys in such a way that you don't have the decryption keys for a solution you provide. So what if a company truly cannot prevent, provide a way to break the encryption of their solution? They're going to face fines then. What kind of fines are they going to face? Millions of dollars? 
don't no know if that's knows. been no one knows yet. So no it, one knows the, the, the level of fine. Yes. Oh my gosh. So, so I would so say it's in the tens of thousands, uh, minimal. Um, but I also would say further to your point, at what level of detail? As someone who's, as you say, has seen engineering specs or at least understood algorithms, uh, at what level of the service do you introduce assistance? Is it by installing malicious software? into your own company's products and services mm. uh, to redirect traffic of a particular individual? Is it to modify a service on demand? What is it? What is it that they're talking about? Is it to decrypt a single message? But if I go at the global level, then I affect all users. If I go at an individual level, then I'm almost doing something uh, a little bit customizable. Uh, mm-hmm. And then if I do it, when will they knock on my door again? You know, do I have to have a whole department dedicated to these kinds of requests? And this is something that really businesses don't want to have to bear the cost of. Oh, no. I mean, I can't, I can only imagine how much this could cost, especially with the technical capability notice requirement that says a company must build a new function to help police get a suspect's data or face or face fines can you imagine if you spent years building a really strong secure system and then all of a sudden you're told that you have to now as you just pointed out earlier need to create something to break that system that you made so secure that's going to to cost so much money uh, and it could take a lot of time you know here in the US with the Apple um, phone issue a couple of years ago, everybody was just pounding on Apple saying, well, you need to break that. Uh, you need to let us in. And they were talking as though it's something they could do in just a matter of a few seconds or a few minutes. And it seemed like they didn't realize if you build strong technology, it's going to take a while to build something that might break it. And then what what good is it uh, to begin with then for those who were using that tech to be to begin with, is the government going to pay for that development of something to break the the tech? I, I, exactly. I mean, that, that was the, the classic uh, Apple versus FBI case uh, where they were trying mm-hmm. to unlock the contents of uh, the uh, individual responsible for the San Bernardino uh, massacre. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, Farouk's mobile phone... Um, they wanted to see uh, evidence on it, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, FBI was heavy-handed. They said, "Please unlock Apple." And of course, Apple is is their whole reputation, their whole business model, their risk appetite is based on being a company that espouses and embraces privacy. So, when you, as a government or as a federal bureau of investigation, attack someone's core proposition, their value is to uh, embrace privacy, and they have products which uh, are secure for the transmission of, of messaging. When you are asking somebody, give me the source code or give me the ability to open, show me the algorithm for the encryption, do this and that, and let me break into your iOS, uh, which Apple, for instance, did not do. But mm-hmm. what did the FBI do? They got a third-party company. You know, It was never revealed who it was, but we believe it was cele- ce- Celebrate uh, in Israel. Uh, that was possibly the service that was used to actually get what the FBI wanted. And what we are now creating is a culture of, well, companies out there, uh, yes, you are all businesses. Some of you create products that uh, embrace encryption and privacy, and some of you actually exist to break the encryption and privacy. And 
this whole notion of ethical hacking, this notion of what is the responsibility of a business entity, should businesses be going against other businesses on behalf of a government contract. Um, these are all issues. And so when you're asking uh, an organization to hand over their source code because you want a technical capability notice uh, applied to a given function to help police get a suspect's data or, or what have you, then we're really in murky territory here. Uh, and I, I actually think this has happened as a result of governments feeling quite powerless in compared to the IT giants, the internet giants like uh, Google and Facebook, and probably mm -hmm. saying, now we will tell you what to do and you will give this to us. Uh, Apple has always complied with the government. It's not any new news. Uh, they publish their requests um, and how they responded. Sometimes they can help the government in a timely manner and sometimes they can't. And the same for Google. You know, where there is probable cause or reasonable cause and proportionality, people do respond. But this is now getting into, you know, unknown territory. We don't know what mm -hmm. they're going to be asking. We don't know why. And we don't know what will be the penalty if they don't comply. Yes. Well, who has oversight of this new law then? Is that's being used by both, you know, government and law enforcement? I mean, who do both of those types of entities have oversight or is there any site oversight at all? I mean, is there any penalties for misuse of the law by these entities? Great question. Uh, there is no judicial oversight. And uh, one of the things we are calling on as the Australian Privacy Foundation in Australia is to actually say, well, who is going to be uh, the ombudsman, for instance, or some judicial oversight, some, some warrant process, so that this thing doesn't go totally wild in, re in response to technical assistance requests and notices and capability notices. So who will play that critical role of pro providing judicial oversight and how do we institute that as a process? But for now, the Joint Parliament Parliamentary Committee on Intelligence and Security hasn't really addressed this. They've taken the approach, we'll continue to revise and review the amendment after it's been passed, and it's been passed. And so now what? Do we really think, uh, now that these powers are available to law enforcement, that they will say less or they will demand more over time? Um, and that's been a, a critical issue for all of us uh, studying these amendments. Oh, yes. Lack of accountability is such a danger because it can lead to so many um, additional harms to the people whose data is involved in the way it's being approached. And, and you know, it's, it's bills and, and laws in the U.S., uh, it's similar here, too, it seems like, in many ways. But it seems like, like you said, they want to get a law passed and out there, but they haven't addressed everything. So it's kind of like, like building a, a new sports car and making it available for sale, but you don't have any brakes or seat belts in it yet. So you'll just uh, address that after, you know, it's been out there and you see how bad the damage is to the people using it before uh, you, you create rules for that. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, one of the things I was saying towards the end of last year was it needs to get through now, like the last sitting week of parliament. It needs to happen now. We, we have to put pressure. And the opposition government was not going to sign off on this. This was not going to happen. And then there was a backflip back flip within 24 hours, literally, saying, oh, it's urgent. We need to pass it because we suspect that something's going to happen around Christmas time and that'll, you know, evade the situation and the event from taking place. And... Uh, the Shadow Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, said, 
Well, the government had to make important concessions to ensure better oversight and limitation of powers in the bill and better safeguards against potential unintended consequences, but they still put their stamp of approval and it passed. And those potential unintended consequences is exactly what you're talking about. And I think what we're going to see is a loss of trust in Australian security businesses and it's damaging for for people like lawyers, journalists. It's damaging for people in other areas that are not in just cryptography and security, but those people that are using the right mechanisms to do their work. Yes. I mean, how does it impact um, the general public? What if uh, a public or a private citizen is using strong encryption and law enforcement or police want to say, well, we need you, you know, to let us in. I mean, does this law mean that uh, that private citizens and the general public can be forced to reveal their passwords and their decryption keys? I don't know. I mean, uh, it, it might well. I mean, we, we do have the Privacy Act uh, of Australia, uh, which is considered by most, uh, you know, it has principles, the Australian um, Privacy Principles. It's considered to be a watered-down kind of Privacy Act, uh, not like the GDPR in the European Union, uh, of which we've seen go into force in a strong way with big penalties for players that don't comply. Um, but everyday Australians, I think, we're becoming more sensitive. Uh, we trust less. Uh, there have already been government breaches uh, of medical systems, of um, uh, financial systems. Uh, but what next? You know, the stock market trading, online voting, um, mm-hmm. health information, all those things like our online banking re- uh, inquiries that require in- encryption. I think Australians are becoming less trustful of who mm-hmm. has access, why they have access. Um, and I think it's caused a chilling effect to the point that sometimes people just don't send particular messages over the internet anymore. Uh, I think the old days that says if you don't want someone to read it, don't write it, uh, because we are becoming uh, more and more suspicious of how our messaging is actually being intercepted and read. So I, I would have a, a, a caution uh, which says continue to use encrypted software uh, you'll find some of those freely available. There are paid services to people uh, that may cost you about $5 per month uh, in any nation you're in. Uh, they're mm-hmm. worthwhile. Uh, you can invest in virtual private network communications where, again, uh, things are sent differently through uh, the Internet and uh, encrypted and really not available to those that you don't want things to be available to. And finally, I would say... Um, uh, if, if you're really wary about a particular thing, uh, don't write it down. Don't send it. Uh, wait to mm-hmm. see somebody in person or call them and talk to them. Yeah, and hope and make sure that your phone's not bugged while you're doing exactly. it if you're super, exactly. uh, super suspicious. Well, how do you think the cyber crooks will re- react to this law? Do you think they're even concerned or do you think they're like, yeah, we got our own tools we're using, so this isn't going to impact us one bit? Or do you think they're using all these uh, this tech and now they're thinking, hmm, we aren't going to have any tech we can use to send our encrypted communications? Uh, I think uh, uh, they will encrypt before they send, uh, and that has its own um, complications for those who wish to decrypt. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think, I think we have to think about cyber criminals as always being one step ahead uh, of businesses and even governments. The true cyber criminals 
uh, uh, their full-time job is to penetrate networks and uh, to access information they shouldn't be accessing. So I, I almost would say, uh, good, good try, government, but really you don't know what encryption about, is about. And there are others out there uh, who have encryption on steroids, really, uh, who mm -hmm. will be able to send through messages uh, in a private way if they're trying to conduct harm or, or penetrate systems, for that matter. Well, and related to this whole topic, something I always wonder about, because when there's hearings asking law enforcement uh, who, who want to have these backdoors, you know, what is there any evidence that providing backdoors into encryption has actually improved safety? Um, that's that's my question. How? What proof is there that this is actually going to even work? Um, there isn't any proof. Uh, all it all it really is built on is the premise that most people uh, don't understand encryption, don't understand algorithms, uh, don't know how to read software, uh, don't know how to connect the network. Um, and I think it's built on that premise. But when we have other companies uh, like Wei Weiwa, for example, the Chinese company now, uh, who is in a bit of a, a difficult situation, uh, who are deliberately building uh, dual uh, access to their products uh, across the waters uh, when they're purchased by other third parties uh, and clients, then you have to think that this market is very complex. Not only do we have, on the one hand, uh, companies that can create, or entities, I should say, entities that can create very strong encryption, but on the other, you've got companies who are creating their own backdoors for themselves uh, mm. to access information. Um, so the complexity is, what kind of stakeholder are you? What's your intent? And what's your level of capacity uh, in terms of mat mathematical breakthroughs? And that's why there's so much research being funded in cybersecurity at the moment, because we all know it's a hot topic, and we all know it's going to get more and more complex uh, over time, particularly when we have non-state actors engaging in this act, but also countries uh, that are harboring many of the individuals uh, that are known cyber criminals, at least that's where the traffic is known to come from, uh, like Russia, for, in for instance. Well, we've had, I've enjoyed this conversation so much, Katina, but we're almost to the end of the hour here. What would be one primary point you'd like to leave with our listeners today, maybe about encryption or encryption laws or encryption backdoors? Um, I, I think plainly what we began with, uh, that not having the option to have encryption is a human rights abuse and that these governments need to really change the language around these uh, amendments in this, in this instance, it was really known as the encryption bill. In actual fact, it's the spy bill. So anyone attempting to water down and create systemic vulnerabilities and weaknesses in uh, software and uh, encryption is really decrypting and causing us to consider and be concerned about spying occurring from our governments, from other businesses, and from those with the capacity to replicate code through to backdoors. Thank you. Very well put uh, and very well summarized. Thank you so much for being with us today to discuss this important topic, Katina. Always a pleasure, and uh, I wish you all the best with your future shows. It's a wonderful program.
Thank you. Thank you. Today, I've been speaking with Dr. Katina Michael, IT privacy, data security, and ubervalence expert. And we've been discussing encryption and the Australia law uh, that basically forces backdoors into encryption solutions. What did you think? Please send feedback about this show. Uh, we'd really love to hear your thoughts about what we talked about today. Would you like to hear more on this topic? Let me know. And if you have another security or privacy topic, let me know that as well. Um, you could contact me with questions, comments, or these types of feedback by using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Please tune into the show each week. And if you can't make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings. You can find all of the recordings of all my past shows on all those different apps that I talked about in addition to the VoiceAmerica.com business channel website. And certainly, please feel free to contact me for information, security, privacy, and compliance keynotes, being an expert witness, or for other help with security and privacy. And I also have a YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor, if you want to see some of my uh, appearances on the Iowa Live morning shows and see the topics we discuss there each month. I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and you work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.